Okay. Tonight we're going to go where no man has gone before. We're going to go to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. It's a a good Bible drill to see if you can even find it. The only reason I think you can find it is because uh, you know it comes after Micah and your Bibles are starting to turn to Micah because we were there a little bit of time. So, Uh, Nahum. The little book of Nahum. My least two favorite books in the Bible are Nahum and Zephaniah. They would be my least two favorite books in the Bible. But I still, you know, I was reminded as I was preparing for this study how rich the whole Bible is, all 66 books. And there's just so much, even in this little book of Nahum, that speaks to us. And that word that speaks to us comes from the Lord. And so I think it's a very important book. And, and so uh, we'll be picking up tonight and in, in, in looking at chapter 1 of Nahum. And the reason the book is called Nahum is because the prophet who wrote this book's name uh, is Nahum. Uh, and his name means comfort. And it's a very appropriate name for this book because this book was a book of comfort to the Israelites. Why was it a book of comfort to the Israelites? Because the book is about the judgment of Nineveh. That's the theme. And why in the world would we have a book about the judgment of Nineveh? Well, because the Ninevites were the Assyria, that's the capital of Assyria. They were probably, probably the most brutal, empire ever. I mean, they made ISIS look like sissies. I mean, the things they did were absolutely horrific, the things they did to their enemies. And Israel was their enemy. And they harassed Israel for years, and they finally took the northern kingdom into captivity in 721 B.C. And uh, then they harassed the southern kingdom of Judah. You You remember in Hezekiah how Sennacherib comes down there with Rebeshach or whatever the guy's name is. I'll get his name here in a minute. But he comes down and, and uh, they harass and taunt Israel. They're at the gates of Jerusalem. And, and uh, they didn't defeat Judah, but uh, they came very close to doing that. And they gave them a lot of trouble. So when you write a prophecy about their destruction, that makes all the Israelites happy. It brings them comfort. And so... This little book was written about 70 years after the northern kingdom went into captivity, but 70 years before the southern kingdom went into captivity. So it was written right there in the middle. And so it's, but, but the Assyrians were still harassing the southern kingdom. They had already taken the northern kingdom into captivity. And so this word of comfort comes to them that, hey, you know, it looks bad. It looks like your enemies are winning. But God is still on his throne. Yeah, okay. And so we pick it up in verse number one. Verse number one, and it says the burden or the judgment against Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, again, the capital of Assyria. uh, And uh, it says the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. 
So we need to find out where Elkosh is. Anybody know where Elkosh is? I don't either. I had to study and figure it out where it was at. Most conservative scholars believe that it's the Elkosh that uh, is, was a city in the southern uh, part of uh, Judah between Jerusalem and Gaza. That's, where, that's who most people uh, attribute his uh, resonance to, to, to Elkish in Judah. But there's also, it's very interesting that there's also a little town called Elkish, just there was in that day a little town called Elkish, uh, just north of Nineveh. So I'm kind of of the opinion that Nahum had been taken captive by the Assyrians and settled in this little town of Elkish just north of Nineveh. And then he gets this word from the Lord. I mean, here's these Assyrians have taken them into captivity. They've given them a really, you know, a really tough life. And uh, all of a sudden the word comes from the Lord that uh, they're going to be judged. And so that, that would make sense that, that possibly that's where he was from. Now, Again, let me say before we get into this little book that uh, 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 the same thing I've said on several occasions that the reason I wanted to go through the minor prophets and the reason I like the minor prophets so much, now it's some hard stuff to wade through sometimes, but remember I've said it before, it's in the minor prophets that we see things about the heart of God that we don't see elsewhere in scripture. We see things about how God works with mankind uh, in ways that we don't see elsewhere in Scripture. And that's what I, when I was praying earlier, I was talking about having a balance. Because some people get this balance of, you know, that the God of the Old Testament, or get this imbalance, that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. And the reason they get that imbalance is because they don't really understand all the attributes of God, or they really haven't studied all the attributes of God, or they really haven't listened to all the attributes of God because they haven't studied the whole Word of God. And you can't learn about God by just reading the Gospels. Now, you learn a lot of good things about God by reading the Gospels, but you learn a lot of good things about God reading a book like Nahum. And, and so if all your dealings with God or all your knowledge of God is based upon the Psalms and based upon Genesis and the Torah and their dealings with the early dealings with Israel as they went into the promised land and then your and then your knowledge of God is based upon Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh then you're going to have you're going to have an imbalanced view of God and I hear that in in a lot of theologians because when I hear somebody say oh we had this storm and you know the devil did it well that's bad theology or uh, this tragedy comes upon somebody and and we just think well you know that's just bad luck it's not bad luck. And what you see in the, in the minor prophets, you see how God deals in judgment, not only with nations, but also with individuals. How he loves his people and protects his people and how he avenges his people. And, and so, you know, when you, we were praying for somebody earlier, you know, that, that, uh, that their husband would get saved. That, that's great. But also, you know, in God's mind, God will avenge if what that person has done to one of his children. And, and some people don't want to, oh, no, God would never do that. Oh, yes, he will. Trust me, he will. And I'm not going to pray for him. That's not my job to pray for him to get that vengeance. My good job is to pray for him to get saved. We're to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. 
But then I'm not surprised when I hear something really bad happens to somebody that did something really bad to a child of God. It doesn't surprise me at all. And so you, you, you got to read books like this to be able to, to get a proper view of God. You know, God is to be feared. You know, God is love, but God is to be feared. God is, God is an awesome, mighty God who takes vengeance on, on, on the wicked. And, and that's what you hear in a book like Nahum. And, and we need to hear that, especially today. Because we're living in a country that's, that's becoming more wicked by the minute. And people just going on like, man, God's just going to let this go on forever because he's a God of love. And then when something like 9-11 happens, you know, that's, that's, God didn't have anything to do with that because God is love. Well, you, you read a book like Nahum and you say, whoa, you know, I mean, God does have something to do with all of these things. And so he pronounces this burden on Nineveh. And I'm sure, you know, when the Israelites are hearing this, even the Israelites in captivity, they're excited about this. Now, we studied Nineveh, a little bit about Nineveh a little while back. What book were we in? Do you remember? Jonah. Jonah. And you remember what happened? Jonah had preached to the Ninevites and they had repented. And I said back then, I think that was a pretty superficial repentance. I mean, God is so merciful. He looks for any kind of repentance and he will show mercy. But it didn't last long. And they became, became this brutal empire who came down and destroyed the, the northern kingdom. And I mean, they, they were, were brutal to those people. And then they were doing brutal things to the people in the southern kingdom. And so this burden of... Uh, is pronounced against Nineveh. This judgment is pronounced against Nineveh. And then, and then the prophet kind of takes a detour, I think. What he's going to say applies to Nineveh, but it also applies to Israel. What he's going to say in these next few verses, it also applies to every one of us. It also applies to the United States. That's why we study a book like Nahum. It isn't just some historical prophecy about Nineveh. There's lessons here that we want to learn. So, so look at verse number two and, you, and, and, and look at what he says. God is jealous. God is. There's one of those God is's. God is jealous. And the Lord avenges. That's the Lord of the New Testament and the Lord of the Old Testament. The same God. The Lord avenges and is furious. He's like me in traffic. No, he's not furious in that way. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, on his enemies. Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. So if you aren't for him, you are against him and he will take vengeance upon you. He will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. I was talking to somebody this week and they were telling me that they could do anything that they wanted to do because God is love. And Jesus died and he paid for all our sins. And no matter what they do, uh, their sins are forgiven. And that the, whole, the sins of the whole world are forgiven. The sins of the whole world have been paid for, but they haven't all been forgiven. His, his comment was that everybody's going to get saved because all of the sins of the world have been paid for. They've, they've all been paid for. 
but they all haven't been forgiven. You get your sins forgiven when you come to Jesus Christ. So what I told him, I said, you know, you need a little dose of Nahum. I've been studying Nahum. You might want to go read Nahum. And then you get a little bit different view of God there. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. If everybody's saved, there's nobody to avenge. But this is real clear. The God, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, look at that. God is jealous. We like to say God is love. God is light. God is truth. God is, we're going to see in a minute, God is good. All these things are true. But God is also jealous. You better, we need to understand that. We need to fear God because God is jealous. Not jealous like some starstruck lover. That's not the kind of jealousy it is. That jealousy is, and it means that, that he alone is to be worshipped. He doesn't allow his creation to worship anybody but him. That's why we have a fallen creation. And we worship him through our obedience. And so God is jealous. That means his nature is to be jealous. His nature is to demand worship. And we're to worship no other gods. Does that sound familiar at all? Go back to the Ten Commandments. We're not under law, but where are those commandments? They're on our heart. And, and the first two commandments, let, you don't have to turn there, but let me, I'm reading from Exodus 20 in, in, in verse 3 and 4 and 5, I think. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting iniquity, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. You know, when you worship somebody other than the Lord God, you are at enmity with God. You hate God and God hates you. He loves you because he so loved the world. But hate in God's from God's standpoint, is the action he takes against those who hate him. He still loves them, but he takes this action of hate against them. And that's why it says there, again, reading that verse, the Lord avenges and is furious. From our standpoint, he looks awful furious. But he hasn't lost his temper or anything. He waits until his cup of wrath is full with our idolatries and our sin. And then he takes vengeance on his adversaries and, and reserves his wrath for his enemies. So God is jealous. And when we make him jealous, then God doesn't lose his temper, but he is furious. He's extremely angry. It's calculated anger. It's measured anger. And then he acts on that anger. People need to hear that. It's a scary thought to be at enmity with God. To have God mad at you, furious at you because of your idolatry. 
And I think sometimes he gets furious at us because of our idolatry. I mean, we have a lot of idols in our life. A lot of idols in our life. And that's why we, when I said this past weekend, we're more like the church at Sardis. You know, we, 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 we got a little bit of our life that we're giving to the Lord and we're to strengthen what we have. We're to strengthen our faith and we do that by turning from idols. Now, Israel had become an adversary of God. They had become the enemy of God. Go back and read the other prophets that we looked at, especially Hosea. You read Hosea and how Israel had become God's enemy. And so God raised up an adversary for Israel, and that was Nineveh. And then Nineveh became an enemy of God because they attacked Israel, even though he was the one that wanted them to attack Israel. So they, even though God used Nineveh, God raised up Babylon to come against Nineveh. And, and uh, uh, he used Babylon to destroy the nation of Nineveh and to, to take the southern kingdom into captivity. They, Nebuchadnezzar was a, a puppet in the hand of God. And then uh, God raised up Persia to bring down Babylon. And Persia, man, Persia, you get a king that kind of reminds me of Donald Trump. You know, you get this Cyrus in there who's, who's really taking care of the Jews, taking care of, you know, the people of faith, uh, even though he's not probably, wasn't at that time maybe a man of faith. He was raised up to, to protect the people of faith. And, and then Persia went down the tubes and God raised up Greece to bring them down. And then Greece went down the tubes and God raised up Rome to bring them down. That's a pattern, isn't it? That God uses nations to discipline his people. But then he brings those nations that discipline his people down. Then look at verse number three. He says, the Lord is slow to anger. You know, the Lord is furious. But God is very patient with us. He's very patient with, with the human race. He's slow to anger. And great in power. And, and I'm going to reword this last part of verse, the first part of verse 3 a little bit. But he will not at all acquit the wicked. Man, that's pretty scary stuff. He will not at all acquit the wicked. God doesn't exercise his wrath because he's lost his cool. He's very patient with us. And it, some people take that patience as a license to go on with their sin. But look at what it says there. He will not at all acquit the wicked of their sin. Every sin we commit will be punished. Every sin you have ever committed will be punished or was punished. Every sin the Israelites committed, every sin the Ninevites committed, they were going to be punished. And God is omnipotent. That means he has all power. So as this verse says right here, he's great in power. He has the power to punish us for our sins. And when our wrath, cup of wrath is full, then he will judge a nation and he will judge an individual. Well, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that because... He took his wrath out 
the wrath he had for me, he took it out on Jesus at the cross. That crucifixion was the wrath of God on the Lord for the sins that you and I committed, for the sins of the world. That's why the cross is essential. Without the cross, you're still under the wrath of God. And God will not acquit at all the sin of the wicked. Not at all. Now, he talks about this power of God in judgment. Beginning in the last part of verse number three. He says, the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are dust, or the clouds are the dust of his feet. I mean, what's he saying right there? He's saying, who controls the weather? The Lord controls the weather. And he can use the weather to judge the wicked. You know, the more wicked people get, have you noticed that? The more extreme the weather becomes. Hello. Hello. I don't, uh, you know, I don't believe in climate change like, Unbelievers believe in climate change, like this uh, one world order group believes in climate change. But I do believe that God's changing the climate. He's turning up the heat and turning up the cold. And up, he's turning up the storms because we have become so wicked. And so, you know, we do have, in one sense, have climate change, but it's not, for the most part, the work of man. It's the work of God. Look at verse number four. He said he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. We've seen that in the Bible, haven't we? Where at? Remember how he rebuked the sea when they were, the children of Israel were crossing the Red Sea? God can do anything he wants with the sea. He created it. We saw Jesus calming the storm, rebuking the sea. He dries up all the rivers. If he wants to dry them up, he can dry them up. And the places that are the, like Carmel, which is the garden of God, and Bashan, Bashan, uh, if he wants those rich, lush areas of Israel, if he wants them to have a drought, he can make them have a drought. If he wants to bring, I, I think it's almost impossible to bring a drought to Louisiana, but I think he could do it if he wanted to. He sure gives us a lot of rain, doesn't he? The mountains quake before him. If there's an earthquake, who causes that earthquake? Who allows that earthquake? I mean, some of that stuff is set up within the laws of nature, and there's certain faults, and I understand that. But I tell you what, God can take this earth in his hand and shake it, and shake every one of us off of it if he wants to. He has that kind of power. And I think he uses earthquakes. He uses volcanoes. The hills melt. And the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his wrath, his indignation? Who can stand? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? No one. If he wants to bring you down to your knees, he can bring you down to your knees. And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Nobody can endure the fierceness of his anger. Nobody. And, you know, that thank goodness for verse number seven. The Lord is good. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is light. The Lord is love. The Lord is furious. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Now, what does he mean by good? He, he's righteous and just. Everything he does, he's right in doing it. We have no right to question the Lord. He's always good. That's not 
Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. He's been naughty and nice, none of those things. He is good, always good and always just. That is really, have you ever just pondered the thought if God was just good some, most of the time? And then every once in a while he decided to be really bad? Just think of the fact that God, by his nature, see, that's why there's certain things that God cannot do. Because he is good. And everything he does has to be good. That's his nature. God is good. God is good, a, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Boy, isn't that good news? And he knows those who trust in him. God knows his own. How long has he known them? Since the foundation of the world. So uh, he knew that from the foundation of the world that, that uh, we would be those who trust in him. And because of that, he died for our sins and, and uh, appeased the wrath of God. And that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? I, I, I certainly want to be one of the elect. Don't you? How do you get to be one of the elect? Well, you simply believe. And when you believe, like I always say, you will find that you were chosen. Once you believe, you'll realize that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Just as simple as that. But verse number eight, but if you don't know God, if you don't believe, then with an overflowing flood, he will make another end to its place. The Syrians didn't believe, the Israelites didn't believe, and they, they faced judgment. And darkness will pursue his enemies. You know, God is light. And if you reject his light, where are you heading? You're heading to darkness. And darkness will pursue his enemies. Utter darkness will pursue his enemies. Utter darkness. The more you run from God, the more you head into darkness. Until you run so far, you're in hell. And there's two descriptions of hell in the Bible. One is a place of fire, and the other is a place of utter darkness. And I'll tell you what scares me more than the fire. It's the utter darkness. Can you imagine spending eternity without any light whatsoever, without any light? I'm talking about in, you can't find a place as dark as hell. Utter darkness. Zero light. I've been in some pretty dark places in my life. But utter darkness, I mean, it's just unimaginable that someone would live through that and live in that place for eternity. That's, that's, uh, that's the fate of those who run from God instead of running to God. Verse number nine. What do you do to conspire against the Lord? How foolish are you? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Once he makes a decision and you've crossed that line as a nation or as an individual, you're toast. You're toast and there's no second chance. God gives you a million chances, but once you've crossed that line then, then, uh, and he exercises judgment on an individual or a nation, it's over. It's over. And I mean, here was Jonah. He had gone down to Assyria and, and they had repented. But, but uh, uh, 
they're not going to get a second chance. They got a chance and they're not going to get a second chance. Verse number 10, for while, for while tangled like thorns intertwined in their evil ways is what he's saying there. And while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From, from you comes forth one who, I wouldn't capitalize who there, from you comes one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And he's probably referring there to Sennacherib or uh, I have his name written here, Rabshakeh. You remember Rabshakeh in, in uh, 2 Kings who, who taunted the Israelites at the gates. Uh, he was, he was, he was uh, Sennacherib's counselor and uh, God ended up chasing him out of town. But, uh, and both of those guys bit the dust at some point. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe, and likewise many, though they think they're safe, because they, they have these large armies, in this manner they will be cut down when the Lord, and I would capitalize the he there, when he passes through, when the Lord passes through these armies. Though if I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, because uh, uh, you look back at that prior verse, uh, Affliction will not rise up a second time in verse number nine. And so once that empire was wiped out, it was totally wiped out. For now, verse number 13, I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. You're, you know, here was Assyria and they had had this power to enslave all of these peoples of all of these various nations. And God's about to break those, uh, those uh, bonds. He's going to break those apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. He's speaking to Sennacherib here, I believe, specifically. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. You're not going to be the big man on the block anymore. Your name shall, not, shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molten image, and I will dig your grave. And then he says something. He said, basically says your gods are going to perish with you. And then he says something. He says, for you are vile. That's a bad description. I mean, you're in bad shape when God calls you vile. That means you're, you're so evil, you're past saving. Pharaoh became vile. Judas became vile. Saul became vile. So evil that God couldn't help them. God is good, and he would help them if, if he could. But you are vile, and so you're going to be totally destroyed. And man, was that good news for the Israelites, because here was this brutal, uh, ruthless, evil, wicked empire that was ruling over them. And in the southern kingdom, they were harassing them, and now they're about to be destroyed. And so uh, Nahum says, behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings. You know, somebody's coming to let you know the Babylonians have destroyed the Assyrians. They defeated the Assyrians. Behold on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah. Now, Israel's already in captivity at this point. So maybe the Babylonians are going to be better for them than the Assyrians, but they're not going to escape their captivity at this point. But Judah has escaped the wrath of the Assyrians. And so what God is going to say to them is, now let this be a lesson. Take heed to what's happened to your brothers in the north. And he says, O Judah, keep your appointed feast. 
The feasts were a big part of their staying close in a relationship to the Lord by coming up to Jerusalem and seeing the temple and the, and, and the tabernacle and, and uh, 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 going through the, the appointed feast. They were reminded of their history. They were reminded of the relationship with God and hopefully they were brought closer to God. So keep your appointed feast and perform your vows. Perform your vows. I mean, to some degree, I think talking about the vows that they made way back uh, when Moses was, uh, had them on one mountain pronouncing blessings and one mountain uh, pronouncing curses. And they agreed that they were going to live for the Lord. And so perform your vows. For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. Uh, uh, Assyria is utterly cut off. They're gone. But here's the bad news. The bad news is you got a new enemy, a new kid on the block, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's just about as wicked as Sennacherib was. So don't let your guard down because if you let your guard down and you become vile, then I will send Babylon down and they will conquer you and take you off into captivity. There's kind of a veiled dread here, and that's, that's uh, what he's saying. Now, I've got to tell you something. There's a lesson here for us, too. There's a lesson here for us. You never arrive in this life to a point where you don't have enemies and you don't have trials. Never. You get rid of one, and here comes another one. It's like the little pop a mole thing. You know, you get rid of pop one down and here comes another. You get one or one trial and you go back in another. It's just one thing after the other. And God has a purpose in that. He has a purpose in that so that we stay close to him. So that we observe those feasts. We, not literally, but spiritually. We we observe Pentecost. We observe the fact that we've been given the Holy Spirit. We observe the Passover and the fact that Jesus has died for our sin. And we stay close to the Lord and we don't allow idols to come into our life. If we do, there's enemies out there that's going to get us. They're going to get us. They're going to bring us down. They, might, they're not, they can't destroy you if you're a born-again believer. You can't lose your salvation. But they're going to, they're going to, they're going to cause you some problems. Uh, you remember over in the book of Judges, when Joshua died, God told the Israelites, he says, I will not drive out all of your enemies from your midst so that through them I may test you whether you will keep my ways to walk in them or not. And God tests us the same way. And he's not going to drive out all our enemies from our midst. You're going to have enemies in this world. And you're going to have trials in this world. We're going to have tribulations in this world. It's just part of life. But, hey, you're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. You stay close to Christ. You perform your vows. And uh, you'll get through it just fine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you again for your word. And, Lord... We do ask for your grace. The good news in this passage is that you are good. You're good and you're slow to anger. And Lord, we're, we have experienced your mercy through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we just ask, Lord, that, that uh, you help us, Lord, in the process of staying close to you. 
Lord, I know you want that choice to be ours. I know you, every day we get up and your mercies are new every day. And Lord, it, your heart is for us to, to, to be serious about our relationship with you. But Lord, help us with that. Help us with that. Keep us from the evil one, Lord. Keep us from evil. Lord, uh, uh, show your presence to us. Show, show your glory to us. Lord, because when we see your glory, all the things of this world grow, grow strangely dim. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to be close to you in these last days of which we live. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.